Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Welcome listeners to this Mastering Life podcast where I'm very honoured and privileged to be down in the, the home of Martin Allen, aka Mad Dog, um, formerly a player with Queen's Park Rangers and West Ham United and more latterly involved in football management. So uh, yeah, I've had a brief chat with Martin off here about uh, what we're going to talk about and I think there's a general perception, in fact I know there is from certainly the people I speak to in football and and supporters on the terrace about uh, a certain image of football managers and how they are. Um, having been involved behind the scenes at Nottingham Forest, I, I learned that that wasn't the case. And that's that's interesting for me because what that does then um, is I want, to, I want to get to know the person, not the, not the uh, reputation or the image. Because we, we can all put a smoke screen up, we can all do that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that's that's the angle I'm going to adopt with Martin. And um, hold on to your coattails because it should be a very very interesting uh, interview with some very interesting insights. So welcome, Martin. Welcome. Lovely to have you at my house. I think you're the only uh, Knox Forest supporter that's ever been anywhere near my home. So uh, this is a first for me. Right. Okay. And I've just learnt as well, listeners, that apparently the, the Knott's Forest thing is a, a deliberate wind-up. Um, and it works, by the way. It works consistently. But uh, anyway, we move on. So um, let's start with the with the football theme, uh, Martin. Um, as I've already introduced you, you played for QPR West Ham. Um, you come from a, uh, I think it's fair to say, good stock in a footballing sense. Do you want to elaborate around that a little bit more? Yeah, well, of course, the uh, the Allen family, I think, is well known to everybody with uh, with uh, probably Clive, the most famous uh, of our family, most successful. But Clive's dad was at Tottenham when they won the double, 60-61, uh, Les Allen. And uh, Clive obviously played for England when, uh, when they played in the Maracanã when John Barnes uh, was uh, brilliant over there for England. Paul Allen, the youngest player ever to play in the cup final uh, at Wembley Stadium for West Ham age 17 and then um, I was the third one in the line uh, my dad also played for Reading and Charlton where he was sold from uh, Charlton when he was in East London with uh, where he just met my mum they were 18 and 19 and my dad was sold from East London and moved out to a town called Reading out in Berkshire which was a long long way from their home in Dagenham in Essex so um the next one after Clive and Paul in that uh, next generation um, was the, some people have described me as the runt of the litter. <laughs> uh, definitely the worst player of the family, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but no, big expectations coming through uh, youth as a youth player when both my cousins aged 19 and 17, one playing for England, one youngest player in the cup final. 
And I was a 15 and 16 year old who was very skinny, very slight, mm. um, out in Reading, um, trying to make, uh, trying to make, be the next one to follow, uh, in their footsteps. So, um, big steps to follow. I suppose looking back, you could say I had a, a pretty decent career, especially considering the natural ability that I had, um, to make the most of the, uh, attributes that I was blessed with. Uh, it took a lot of hard work and it certainly wasn't through um, just natural skill that I got to play so many games. Mm. You touched there, Martin, upon um, the kind of expectation. Was you aware of that from an early age or is it something that you just got on with it anyway? Oh, no, well aware of it. Yeah? Yeah, there was a spell. Um, I was really skinny, very slight, lacked pace. And... Um, at 14, 15, um, uh, my, my hometown team, Reading, uh, we got to the final of the English Schools Trophy, which uh, in those days, that was the big competition to win. And, and Reading, we were unbeaten for two years. Um, went all over the place preparing for this trophy, all over the place playing all the tough teams, all the big, cl- all the big teams around the country. I was captain of that team. And we lost in the final against Middlesbrough, uh, 10,000 people at Ayrson Park and 12,000 people at Elm Park to see that final when I was uh, 15. Bit of, bit of disappointment, but we've been very, very successful and obviously being the captain and the main player, if you like, in that team. Um, it, was a, it was an early start, if you like, to big success. Yeah. Then over the next couple of years, uh, I never grew. I never developed. Uh, my body never turned into um, the next phase through my teens. And I, I found myself uh, for the first time under a, a very strict manager, a uh, Scottish manager at Queen's Park Rangers in the youth team, uh, a guy called George Graham. I mean, everybody that knows uh, their bit about football knows George and what he was like. And for those that are not really up to much on their football, George was a very um, tough uh, Glasgow um, uh, disciplinarian on and off the field. Training was very, very tough. Um, it was intimidating. He was intimidating. He was a brilliant coach. And uh, I did not fit into his plans. Right. And so for the first time in my life, I had this uh, rejection. And it happened at the same time as my cousin Paul was doing so well at West Ham. Fame, he was brilliant at 17. Brilliant. Um, and Clive obviously was doing so well, had all these million pound moves. He was scoring 25 goals a season in the Premier League. He got his move over to Bordeaux. Um, and I was the third one down the list. So when you come to family parties or christenings or weddings or I guess funerals or any get togethers, it was, how are you doing? And at the time I was sub for the youth team. So, um, so through that period as an Alan, um, my dad, who had come from a, a tough area, tough upbringing in uh, in Dagenham, whereas a lot of um, poor families, two, three bedroom houses <clears throat> in little terraced runs, and where so many famous people have come out of Dagenham, Terry Venables, Boxers, Bobby Moore, Jimmy Greaves, uh, Martin Peters, Ken Brown, a lot of famous uh, top, top players, World Cup winners. Actors, um, businessmen, come out of Dagenham 
Um, and they've been brought up very tough with not a lot of money, not a lot of food, and they had to fight and scrap for everything. And uh, I'd been pushed from a very young age from by my dad, who was also a football player, a football manager and a football coach. And he, uh, I remember sitting down with him in, you know, in those days, if you remember, it's called the front room. It wasn't the lounge, was it? It was the front room. And he said, well, you've got two choices. What do you want to make? Do you want to do the extra work? Or do you just want to let it drift along? And uh, there were tears at the time because I was struggling. Mm. And he, he fitted me, fixed me up with uh, two nights a week at Reading Boxing Club. Right. In the summer, when the season had, first season had finished and I wasn't in the youth team, uh, two nights a week at Reading Athletic Club and um, five days a week as a labourer um, on a friend of his building site. He was building an house on the other side of Reading. Mm. So I had to get two buses there every day, two buses home. I had to make my own packed lunch. And basically, I, did, I wasn't strong enough to do the hod carrying, you know, where you carry bricks yeah. up a ladder. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could put one brick on there and it was busting my shoulder. Basically, it was mental torture. Mm. Sweeping up, making cups of tea, putting as much rubbish into wheelbarrows and taking up planks on the side of skips ready to dump it just to try and make me bigger and stronger. Yeah. And then when I'd get home at half past five, my mum would take me to Reading Boxing Club or Reading Athletic Club. And the boxing club, I used to do upper body circuits and sparring and get beat up. And the athletic club, I used to meet a coach in a multi-storey car park, similar to the one right in the middle of Nottingham right now. Um, at about eight storeys. Mm. And to each storey, there was two levels of step. One that went that way a little bit. And then another one went that way a little bit. That got to you the first level. So there were 16 of them. And the guy made me two nights a week uh, hop up on my left, hop up on my right, jump every step two-footed, and then jump every step, every two, second step. And each between each of these exercises, you had to walk to the bottom and then go straight away again. And then the last one, you had to sprint every other step all the way to the top. And I had to do six exercises every Tuesday and Thursday night. I had to do that for five weeks. Um, and then he bought me uh, a one-week holiday to go away with my friends to Ibiza as my reward before starting back to pre-season training. I think it's fair to say that um, under old money or an old term, that was character building. It was. It was. Other friends from school would, um, would still would, went on to do the sixth form. Quite a few of the others went on to do little jobs. Um, I did forget to say Saturday and Sunday mornings, I had to do a six or eight mile run from my house early in the morning before breakfast. And it was character building, but my body changed, my mentality changed. Mm. When I went back to pre-season training, um, I remember at the end of the first week, our manager at the time at QPR was Terry Venables. Right. And Terry Venables got all the first team players, the reserve team players and the youth team players all in, uh, it was a, a place called Greenford, which is on the A40 on the way into into London. The training ground is still there on that left-hand side as I drive past it. And I do go into London. 
and he got everybody together on the Friday lunchtime and uh, he told everybody the route out on the roads um, for the run, for the race, for everyone in the club. The favourite was an England international called John Gregory, central midfield player, great player, yeah. fantastic athlete. And John never, ever, ever lost across country. I mean, he, he was untouchable. He, no one could ever get near him. And then we had another young player as well coming through called Gavin Peacock. He went on to have a fantastic career mm. and he was also a, a running machine. So when everyone got together, I think it was about uh, 11 o'clock on that Friday morning, everyone's together, everyone's a bit nervous. Everyone's waiting for the go. And um, Terry Venables waved his arm down, setting us off like the horses at the Grand National. And off we went. I remember my dad telling me before I left home that morning, right at the very, as soon as he puts his arm down and says go, you sprint as fast as you can and you get as far ahead of the others as you possibly can. And from that point onwards, don't let anyone pass you. <laughs> as I left in a sprint, it was like a three-mile run. As I left in a sprint, they laughed. All of them, all the senior players, you've got internationals there, of all the different own nations laughing at this young boy that sprinted off up the street as quick as he, I could possibly go sprinted. And I never stopped. I beat John Gregory by 20 yards and I beat Gavin Peacock by 50 yards. Wow. And as I came round the corner off of the main road into the car park of the training ground, all the staff were there with their clipboards and stopwatches. And the person that came round that corner through the steel gates, through the cars, into the front of the training ground was me. They could not believe their eyes. I just walked past them all, and especially my coach, George Graham, mm. who the previous season had not even picked me for the youth team. And they knew, <laughs> they knew the next Alan was coming. Yeah. And I knew it. I knew it. They all knew it. And I think it was that day that I realised that I could make that transition from teen youth player to the men. Mm. And that day probably changed my life. That race. Yeah. To get that self-belief in yourself that you can beat them England internationals. It was a special, special day. And there's great learning in that, isn't there, Martin, whether it's in life in general or football specifically, that no matter how much talent you've got, how gifted you are, you still have to work. You know, the ball won't kick itself. You, you know, George Best was one of my heroes. And, uh, you know, I often used to say that he still had to put his boots on. He still had to do something because the ball wouldn't just pick itself up and kick it in the net. So I think what you're saying there, if I'm hearing you correct, is actually with that application of determination, focus and hard work, because you did work hard, particularly for those five weeks, mm. that got you over the line. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, if I didn't, if I hadn't done it, there's no way, um, no way I'd have gone on a great career I had as a footballer, but it was still a good, uh, good career, great mm. times. And I think it was that determination and that focus and that self-belief and the drive uh, from my dad. And I had a good combination because my dad, um, when I was 12, I came home from school with one of those light blue school reports, 
light blue. I don't know why it was light blue, but it was light blue. It was that rectangle shape, shaped like a shape of a brick. So when the when I gave my mum the envelope about four o'clock with my school report in it, and she read it, she said, "You better wait in the front room on the settee, not the sofa, the settee in your front room. Wait till your dad comes home. He's not going to be happy with this." Sport, I've got an A one. For English, I've got a B1. Everything else was C or D6. Lowest effort, lowest, um, what is it for the, for the, for the subject? Lowest, um, like the grading. Yeah, yeah, lowest grade you could get. Mm. But apart from those two things, English, which is what I loved, I couldn't write, mm. and, um, and sport. I remember the car pulling up in the drive. He had a blue marina state. Horrible blue. The handbrake <clears throat> went on. The door slammed hard. Front door, keys opened. He's gone straight through the front little porch bit into the kitchen. Mum showed him the school report. <laughs> and I was sitting there absolutely... Um, you allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Scared stiff. That's graphic language. Yep. The door opens to come in to the front room. He sits on one single chair. Mum sat on the other single chair. I was on the sofa. Said he. He looked at the school report. He said, what do you think of this? That ain't very good. And he stared at me. I was 12. He stared at me. Piercing eyes, my dad had. Piercing, fearless eyes. And he put his finger out and he said, um, have you been running? No. He said, I'm telling you now. He said, you better get out training and you better get out practicing because you're going to be a footballer. So you get out and start doing your work now. He said, because this ain't good enough. You're going to be a footballer. My mum said, my mum said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, well, it's clear from this school report. He ain't going to be, uh, he ain't going to go and work anywhere or do anything. He's going to be a footballer. So go and get your kit on and get out and start running. I couldn't believe it. For me, it was just license to do anything. Yeah. Um, but do you know what, Martin? Just that story there. I think I, I have this this debate with so many people that that life, I believe, is a very, very, very simple game. I believe football is a very simple game. I believe life is. It's people that complicate it. And with your dad, he made things very simple there. You ain't going to be an academic, so get your kit on and start running. That's a very, very simple black and white choice. Off you go. And I believe in that. I massively believe because I think, particularly nowadays, society's become so cluttered with all this, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. No, no, there is no yes, but. Life is a simple game. So I love what you've just said there. That made, yeah, gave you a very, a very stark choice, didn't it? Get out and run. Well, I think what it gave me was a very clear long-term vision. Mm. My dad was at Charlton and when he was 17, he scored two goals in front of 52,000 people. He had to get the bus there. He had to get a bus into the city of London from East London into the city. Mm. And then from the city, he had to get another bus under the River Thames out to Charlton and South London. And he never trained as hard as he could. He never done the extra work that he should have done. He never put the hours in. 
I think he liked the uh, I think he liked the life of uh, alcohol, smoking, and going out and partying. And he didn't ever want me to be that way. And so when he when he was then sold by Cholton to Reading, um, I think then he saw me, and he didn't want me to make the same errors in his in my upbringing and my development and that is probably why my dad was so strict with me and the work that I he made me do and the upbringing all my friends at about 15 or 16 were drinking alcohol I was never allowed to drink um, I didn't really want to I just uh, I was totally focused on being a footballer um, they used to go out and I never really used to go out much um, I was stuck at home preparing for the next training session for the next game, uh, just to fulfil that dream. Mm. You mentioned an interesting word there, vision. As the years have gone by, and obviously you're much wiser now, you're far more experienced in life, um, generally and, and obviously in football, but what's your vision now? You know, When you take that sort of fateful last breath and you look back, what's, what's that goal or what's those big goals that you want to be able to say, yeah, I did that? So what's the, what's the life vision now, Martin? As you uh, as you enter the second half of your life career, <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Mm. Um, Ambition-wise, I think people do realise now more what happens. Similar to Wayne Rooney right now, when professional footballers finish their career, there's a massive void. Yeah from being uh, the focal point, um, special job of being a professional footballer, the dream since you was a little kid. And then when you're 31, 32, 33, 34, it finishes. The money that's uh, paid into your bank account every month for playing football. Yeah. And for me, I had a bad knee. Uh, my dad had just died. Uh, it was my coach, my mentor, as well as my dad. My football career was over when I finished with Portsmouth. And at that point, I was 31. And uh, my marriage broke down soon after, which the rate of footballers at that point, because footballers get depressed. Mm. And they get anxious. They worry about their future, the great lifestyle that they've had. Have they got enough money? They can't start getting a pension or a payoff to you 35 there's a big void for qualifications and income and your two children, how are you going to pay for their future? There's a massive, massive, um, is, it, is the word chasm? Massive. Yeah, yeah. Good word, isn't it? Chasm. Yeah. Um, of how you're going to fulfil the rest of your life. And at one point, I was living in a two-bedroom flat just outside between Maidenhead and Slough on the A4 on my own, with no income, no job, wondering what the hell I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm. And at the time I was picking up leaves because I put cut business cards in the newsagents from the wealthy area where I used to live in a place called Gerrard's Cross, which is where all the posh people live. I had to move out of there down to Slough where all the not-so-posh people live, and mm. it was cheap. 
So I'd drive back up there and do people's gardens. And I was starting as soon as it got light enough to to lift leaves or do the edging or do the grass or the edges. So I could garden. I knew a little bit about it. And I was in a real um, low point in my life. As you can imagine, it's three big hits. Losing your dad, losing your job, and losing your marriage. And seeing your kids every... Uh, every so often weren't great mm. and then I was lucky enough to get a phone call whilst I was gardening uh, from Alan Pardew the Reading manager who had asked me to go there as first team coach because John Gorman had just gone to Tottenham with Glen Oddle and he wanted someone to come in till the end of the season and so I had a fantastic time and then I got a few jobs uh, done a few jobs at Reading Barnet then got that Brentford job and then after a little while, my son, George, who's um, got a degree in philosophy and maths, very, very bright boy. He said, Dad, you've done well in management. He said, but everybody thinks you're a firefighter. He said, whenever teams are struggling and clubs are struggling, they always ring you to get them out of trouble. He said, but what you need is a promotion. He said, once you get that promotion... He said, your CV will kind of be, you know, that's that's what you've got to aim for. Well, lo and behold, when we went into uh, Gillingham, I was invited to go there as manager. They'd finished eighth in the league. Um, didn't know anybody at Gillingham, but just got a phone call. Could you come and help us and be our manager? A year later, we were champions. And then two years after that, I, joined, I was at Barnet. And we were also champions of that league. So I had then the two championships that really was my um, goal, ambition, drive to show that I could win a championship and get a promotion. But a championship is even better than a promotion. Mm. Uh, promotions are good. Champions are great in my mind. Icing on cake. Yeah, yeah. It's much better to be a champion than a promoter uh, all, all day long. Um, but in management, I kind of feel fulfilled. Yeah. With various clubs, the amount of young players that I've worked with that are now playing in the championship, Division One, uh, players that I've had that have played in the Premier League who I've plucked from non-league football from reserve team football and they've gone on to play in the Premier League worth millions of pounds, millions. So I can kind of look back on the management and say, well, some of them have not worked. Some of them have worked really well. Um, and I kind of feel that there'd probably be one more, one more championship, one more championship. And then if I was being greedy, I would just love the opportunity to lead a team out at Wembley to win one of those cup competitions. That would be the icing on the cake and make me probably want to quit and retire. Because I have had it full on since I was probably about eight years old as a footballer. Yeah. There's got to be a point where I probably want to um, have days like today. I'm not working at the moment. I went to yoga this morning at seven o'clock. Then I went out and walked the dog for a long walk. And I've got another yoga class tonight at seven o'clock. I'm eating well, eating much better, sleeping well. 
haven't got the stresses and the strains of management and stood in that technical area. And um, I've got to say, it, I think it makes for me for a better person uh, around my friends, my family, m- most importantly, of course, with my wife. See, listeners would probably be uh, quite shocked, Martin, certainly from the off-air conversations I've had with, you know, generally about, as I said at the top of this conversation, football managers, it, um, stereotypically in general, but more specifically. And if I want to touch on uh, uh, this point, if I may, around your, your let's call it a label, because I don't do labels very well personally, Mad Dog, where did that come from? And is it something that you you embrace or you reject? And, and there's, a, there's a reason I've asked that question. <laughs> that, that nickname... Um... I suppose, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a backhanded compliment in there. You know, I can be uh, anywhere in the world and somebody could walk past me in an airport and say, all right, mad dog. Mm. And I'd look round and sort of, uh, he said, hello, mate. He said, I'm a Middlesbrough supporter. Um, he said, you're mad dog, ain't you? And I could say, uh, yeah, I am. Nice to meet you. And I'd shake their hand. Yeah. I suppose not that many footballers have got nicknames, have they? that are well, so well-known as probably what mine is. Mm. Um, Do you embrace it? You're not, are you indifferent to it? I mean, what, what's your thoughts? Well, this is, this is how it all evolved, really. Um, this, is the, this, is, this is what happened. The Sun newspaper at the time were running stories about these dogs coming in from America, savaging children, which right. they did in this country. Right. And the pictures went onto the front page of the Sun newspaper of the dogs. Right. Mad dogs, mad dogs. It was everywhere Mm. at the time. These mad dogs coming in. And my son, Charlie, at the time, had alopecia. And he was losing his hair. And so to to go where Charlie was with his hair, I had my hair cut to a grey two skinhead. Right. Now, I was brought up to be fiercely passionate and tackle and compete and intimidate the opposition. That was my kind of role in the team. Yeah. And at the time at West Ham, they had a, an area on the side of the pitch at West Ham along the touchline. Um, it was in the area was a standing area and it was called the chicken run. And all those, what I'd call men in that chicken area, chicken run area were passionate I would call them lively. Um, had a good sense of humour from the East End of London. Mm. And at times I would do things on the pitch that would make them laugh. Mm. For instance, once an, a player got injured, the referee called the physio on. And while the physio was treating the injured player, the ball, that, the ball which we'd been playing with, I hid at the back of my shirt. So when the physio went off and the player was fit, the referee couldn't find the ball. <laughs> right, okay. This went on and the crowd behind me were all laughing. The ref- and the linesman was down the other end of the pitch and over the other side so they couldn't see where the ball was. No one could find the ball. But when the ne- next ball came on, the ball dropped out of my shirt and the ref gave me a yellow card. <laughs> and I thought those sorts of things were funny. Right. But also, some of my tackling at the time was also bad. Right. 
And on one day, I tackled somebody, and and the truth be known, I, at times because I used to get so passionate, I used to get froth, froth come out of my mouth onto my cheeks. Mm. And my my partner in midfield that day was a, a a good footballer, a good footballer, very good technical player from Liverpool called Ian Bishop, and he was very relaxed and very calm. And I was the opposite. Yeah. And he looked at me and he went, Matt, you look like a mad dog, son. And laughed. He said, you got all froth round your mouth. Wipe it off. I looked at him, cut him a really serious look, told him where to go in, no, in two words. The second yeah. word was off. Yeah. And said, I ain't wiping it off. He shouted across to the chicken room, it's Mad Dog. But the fellas in the chicken run started singing Mad Dog about me. Right. And then it got out into one of the fanzines. Mm. And then it got out into the newspapers. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd done a really bad tackle on a player called Colton Palmer, yeah. who had just been picked for England. Yeah. I went on as a sub. And I think it was 13 seconds after going on, I hadn't touched the ball, but I'd done a bad tackle onto Colton's knee. And I have since apologised to him for that tackle, but it was a bad one. Yeah. Well, all the rest, West Ham crowd loved it. My dad thought it was the worst tackle he'd ever seen in his life and shouted at me afterwards. Mm. Colton got taken to the hospital, but thankfully there was nothing wrong with him. And then from that tackle onwards, it went onto the back page of the News of the World newspaper. Yeah. It was on the back page of every paper was me caricatured as a mad dog. Right. It was fixed. It was done then and I was stuck with it. Okay. Have I embraced it? Well, at the time I was running a soccer school company, which I'd set up myself with the help of my dad in Reading. And I had 12 towns all over the South of England, including um, a soccer holiday camp. So I would go to sponsors and newspapers, and um, was trying to build a company yeah. for my future after football. And I said, it's Martin Allen from West Ham. Can I uh, have an appointment, please? And the bloke would say, you looking after kids? I saw your tackle last weekend. There ain't no way you're having our money. You can get lost. Mm. So I was backing up against that. But what those didn't know, that on the pitch, I had that mad dog and I could do that tackling. But off the pitch... I was also working extremely hard to try and put a business plan together. Yeah. And there was another side to that mad dog that not many people probably got to see. Is it fair to say though, Martin, uh, and I asked this as a question, I certainly don't offer it as a suggestion that um, over the years that, um, and this is a human trait, that we don't really do anything to kind of we don't want people in, in behind the scenes of our, our real true self, especially if we're, well, we've got a softer side. Because as a guy, I call it big boys don't cry. We're not actually supposed to show that or see that, are we? We're not supposed to admit to the outside world that we go to yoga or do meditation or we're very keen on gardening and all that that stuff that is actually real in life. Isn't it true that life likes labels? Oh, he's mad dog. Oh, he's a mad dog. Always has been, always will be. And I think it takes a special strength and courage to say, well, actually, that's a label I've got. That was then. 
But have you really sat down with me over a beer or a cup of tea and asked me who I really am? Would that be a fair comment? I've never hidden. Um, I think most people know I've got another side. Yeah. Media work, um, TV. I think I get invited to go on because I've got strong opinions yeah. and I don't hide behind, um, I say it how I see it. And sometimes they want humour and yeah. sometimes they want Mad Dog. They want me to be up front and out there. Um, they don't want me just to be um, run-of-the-mill, normal, mm. average. They, they they invite me because they want something. They want some action. Yeah. And they know that I can make people laugh. They, they want me to be out there making people laugh and uh, sometimes being controversial. So I suppose that is part of the media side with my management and my management style. Um, I think I would hope, I would hope all my players that I have work for me and work with me would say that um, I look after them. And one of the biggest compliments I could get was the players at Gillingham nicknamed me Uncle. I asked a couple of them, why do you call me that? And they said, because you look after us all, you take care of us all, and you're, you're like our favourite uncle. You, you, whether you're playing or not, you make sure we're all looked after and we're all okay. Mm. And I didn't... I, it is the biggest and the best compliment I've had. I mean, what a, what a lovely thing for footballers to say when it's such a difficult job can only really keep 11 footballers happy. The mm. rest of them are never happy if they're not playing. But for all of them to come out and sort of say that about you is, uh, I think it says a lot really. I hope it says a lot about me as a person. Absolutely. And that caring, compassionate side, Martin, that the world may not or care not to see is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, going back to this question around vision, you know, is there a case for Martin maybe in the near future or sometime exchanging his football goals for more life goals of making a big difference in the world because those qualities of care, of, of being straight, all those, your story of you've just reflected it to me, whether it's football or life in general, certainly the strong influence of your father um, and the loving sort of contrast uh, of your mother have instilled really good good values in you. Is there a case for going forward, Martin swapping his metaphoric boots for, okay, it's now time for me to be a manager in life and pass these values on for the betterment of the world? I've tried to do that all the way through, I think. Yeah. Um, going back to my parents, um, Dagen in, da in Dagenham all those years ago, uh, the Allen family, my dad's side of the family, um, there were three brothers and three sisters, Rose, Dorothy, Betty, Jeannie, four sisters. And they were living in a three-bedroomed house in the roughest part of Dagenham. A tough, tough to make ends meet and to put food on the table. My mum lived a mile away on a little bit of a nicer estate. And my mum's dad walked from South Shields to London um, for the Jarrow March. 
you know, the March where yeah. they all walked from the northeast. Yeah. He was one of them. And he also played the trumpet in the Salvation Army. And he had short back and sides. He used to smoke a pipe. He used to listen to music. And the house was full of strictness and rules. Mm. If you sat on the sofa or the settee, you had to sit on it. You couldn't lay on it. If you weren't watching something on telly, the telly had to be turned off. So you had to sit upright on the sofa. You weren't allowed to leave the dinner table until everybody had finished. You weren't allowed to talk at the dinner table. You had to eat your dinner. Yeah. I had all, I had all this going on well, every once a month or every couple of months. We used to go back to Dagenham when I was a little boy. And the rules within there were absolutely, oh my God, a Victorian type. My mum bought me up similar to all that. And my dad, he couldn't give a to- he couldn't give a toss about manners or sitting on the sofa. He'd lay on the sofa and have a kip. Mm. Um, but that was the opposite. So yeah. I don't know how they actually connected. I suppose opposites can sometimes connect mm. to find some middle ground yeah. for mum and dad. And so I had that upbringing, and I suppose the charity work about going out to Africa. Um, I've been out there now probably eight or nine times every summer to coach uh, underprivileged uh, children and teach coaches to coach football in uh, in townships uh, all over Africa now has been um, has also been magic for me very humbling um, broadened my horizons to people that have not got any money but they all still smile when they're just walking along to come and play football learn football and learn how to teach football. So those experiences have just been um, amazing and the amount of travel. I suppose it's given me a, a, a far wider awareness um, and what is important in life. How many friends have I got that have got massive houses, loads of money, loads of cars, they're depressed. Mm. Their marriages are in a bad place. Yeah. Their life's in a bad place. Yeah. And, you know, we all see it. All of us see it. We see these great big houses. We see people with mega cars. Half of them, from what I can tell, um, haven't got love. They haven't got um, contentness. Because they always want more. Yeah. They can fly off to a great place in Barbados, but they'd be laying next to somebody that they can't stand. Because they've had to work so hard and so many hours to get all the money to take them to Barbados. By the time they get there, they don't actually appreciate each other. Yeah. Might as well go to Bournemouth and have a week in Bournemouth with someone that uh, you love. Inner peace, isn't it? Inner peace. Oh, God, yeah. You know, when at the end of um, you know my job at uh, Chesterfield in the last home game, the team were we did not play well. It was awful. It was awful to watch. Awful. Supporters were unhappy. There'd been demonstrations the week before. Anyway, there'd be people on the pitch. They were. It was really unhappy football club. And uh, there's people behind me shouting at me, abusing me. But thankfully. I'm able 
to stand in that technical area. I hear it, but I don't listen to it. Yeah. Hear it, but I don't listen to it. Yeah. Um, I see the people and I look at them and I feel sorry for them. Yeah. Um, the comments they made were quite disgusting to say to another human being. It's absolutely disgusting. I would love the opportunity to be able to sit down and chat with them over a cup of coffee somewhere one day. Yeah. And just say, you know, why did you do that? Why would you do that to another person? Mm. I tried my best. It didn't work. That's life. And the only person that I really cared about when the game had finished, team had lost heavily at home, was seeing that my wife, after the game, was okay. Now, as long as she was okay, as long as she was okay, uh, and she, she looked at me in my office and gave me a hug, and she looked at me eye to eye and just said, are you okay? Are you all right? Mm. And I said, I promise you now, I am absolutely fine. Absolutely fine, knowing that you're okay. I'll just do my little jobs, and then we'll get ourselves home. So it didn't break me. It didn't, um, didn't make me cry. It didn't physically hurt me. It was just a shame that people need to get that way and be so abusive. So, no, it didn't hurt me at all. It made me stronger, to be perfectly honest with you. Made me stronger. And just listening to you there, Martin, I totally understand what you're saying there, and I really do, because the model that I've applied in my own life and my own progression is I have a name for myself. Satnam is I am truth. So whatever your opinion or thoughts of me is, that's your truth, but it's not mine. I take responsibility for me, my truth, who I am. Whatever label you choose to put onto me, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, that's your choice, not mine. I'm comfortable and I've got that inner peace and respect of who I am. Yes, 100%. And that love. And that is crucial. I think so long as you've got that, you've got there isn't anything else to have. No. You know, you've you've alluded to it, and I have. You know, similarly, I could, I could, you know, we could, we could fill this sheet with names of people that have got. You know, I call them silver trinkets. You know, we've got they've got Lamborghinis, they've got this, they've got that, they've got this, they've got that. It's like great if that makes you happy. If you're in a world solid, fantastic. But they're only externals, and they can come and go like the wind. But what remains is that. So I absolutely get where you're coming from there. Okay, so if I can start to, uh, as the referee puts the metaphoric whistle in his mouth then, Martin, for the, uh, um, towards um, wrapping up extra time now, um, I want to finish off, if I can, by, you've alluded to there your your work in Africa, your your more charitable side, dare I say. Um, Is that something for the future that you feel could have legs no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But I just enjoy going there. Uh, I don't obviously get paid for that. Mm. I, um, it's, it's two weeks uh, in the summer. Um, been out to Burkina Faso, Kenya, um, South Africa, Zambia, Botswana. Brilliant experience. Brilliant experience. So is that an official charity that you actually run then, Martin? No, it's a company that's based in London called Tackle Africa. Right. And um, 
It's been amazing. It's been amazing. You know, you don't go where all the tourists go. You, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. Reality Absolute of middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and you, you go there and you get a, an hotel, which ain't great. Um, have a bit of breakfast. And you have a, a, a 10 mile taxi journey. About five miles away from the school or the community centre that you work in, you'll see three of the 12, 13, 14 year old kids walking along in their football boots. Still with five miles to go. You look out and you think, I'm sure they were on our course. Mm. As you're getting closer, there's people walking from everywhere. Everywhere. Miles and miles and miles and miles to get to the course. You do the course from all day, 9.30 to 3.30, o'clock, and then they'll walk home. And the next day they'll walk back. They do the course all day and then they'll walk home. When they get their food at lunchtime in those plastic boxes, and how happy they are to get that food, by the way. Mm. Then all through the day, all through the day, whatever we, whatever session we're doing, and however bad the pitches are, it's that orangey shale with rocks or stones or bushes in it. You just got to make it up as you go along as a coach to try and help the coaches that are trying to train these children for the future. Mm. They always smile. They always smile. Amazing. They're always smiling. Some of them haven't even got no shoes on. But they're Fantastic. happy to be there. As you say, as you said earlier on, a very humbling, uh, a great leveller, a great leveller. Final, final one then, Martin. Um, I often ask guests to um, to say that as you look back on, on your life and, uh, as, you know, as one day it, it will, as it will for all of us, that final whistle will be we're blown. Um, what would be your epitaph? For me, mine would be, <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time, and that's a reflection of my more colourful phases of life. What would yours be? What would your epitaph be? Well, I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? That's a big question. I've had to think about this real quick. You've just thrown me on that one. Hmm. Hope it would say, he was a good bloke. He was a good bloke. And you know what, Martin? It doesn't really need to be any more than that, does it? Because that, just those few words, says, says a big story, really. He was a good bloke. Yeah. My dad was very, very well known in Reading because he played for them for 10 years. And whenever I bump into Reading supporters, they always say nice, thing, nice things about my dad. Yeah. Always. They always say, he was a good bloke, your dad. I remember watching your dad play. He was a good bloke. Because he used to entertain them. He was funny. And he would do anything for anybody, my dad. Anything. Give money away. He wasn't rich, but he used to give money away to people that were homeless. He used to do voluntary work with my mum, giving out people that didn't have no food. He'd go out and give them food. Christmas Day, they'd go out and give food away to people that didn't have no nothing. And he would do anything for anybody. And um, they would always say he was a good bloke. He was a good bloke. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word now, isn't it, bloke? It is, yeah. I think most people still understand it, whether they're young or old, but yeah. Yeah, he's a good bloke. Yeah. He was a good bloke. Well, as one that spent um, an hour in your company, Martin, um, I would certainly echo that because I've enjoyed the, <laughs> the trip. We, as I say, we had a bit of a, a talk off here as well, didn't we, about life, about football. And um, yeah, I would certainly echo that. So all that remains for me now is to thank you for your hospitality, certainly your time and sharing your insights and to a, 
you know, to a small degree, um, cheering your vulnerability and your openness, which is, as I said earlier on, takes it does actually take a strength to do that. Uh, and people will take will take uh, inspiration from that because I think we we you know we're conditioned not to show that so called what's perceived as weakness. It isn't weakness, but people perceive. Oh, you don't show your softer side. You win at all costs. Big boys don't cry, and all that stereotypical rubbish. So yeah, I thank you for for sharing the. Uh, Insight is any any last word for, from yourself, Martin, before we uh, blow the final whistle. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to um, to meet you, and you know through our friend uh, Kevin, uh, Notts County supporter. I met a few years ago when he fixed my laptop when I was uh, working at Notts County. Um, to meet you and listen to your. Uh, stories but your your life and your tricky and testing times that you've had mm. and uh it's it's great that we can uh we can have this open chat and share it excellent thank you martin top yeah. man so there you have it listeners um an interesting very insightful interview with with martin allen and uh, as i say i hope you've got something uh, out of that I'm, I'm sure you will have something uh, something or other so Thank you very much for your time. Until the next time, keep mastering life. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember... Mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.